Many of us still remain unsure about pushing the boundaries of innovation and our own belief about safety. Will any of the changes we make as a result of applying human factors in our work practices really benefit our workers and improve our performance? How would our bosses react? What if something goes wrong? How would the regulators and our stakeholders view our initiatives? Welcome to another episode of Embracing Differences, where I speak with Suzette Woodward, a pediatric intensive care nurse who for the last two decades has specialized in patient safety. In this podcast, she talks about her own life, her own journey in safety and her motivations. She raises the importance of rethinking that we, everything that we do in safety and applying the latest concept of safety too, psychological safety and a just culture in healthcare. This is such a wonderful podcast. I so enjoyed talking to Suzette and I can't wait to share her thoughts with all of you. So Suzette, um, maybe a good idea to start uh, with an introduction about yourself. Uh, I think that would be splendid. And, uh, and also, uh, what is it that you would like to, to discuss today? Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm Suzette, um, Suzette Woodward, and um, uh, the main thing about me is that I've worked in the NHS for over 40 years, um, and that's uh, obviously a, a lifetime career, which I've totally and utterly loved every second of. I started out as a nurse. Um, genuinely, that, you know, that was, that was more than enough for me. I was brilliant. I loved being a nurse. Um, and uh, especially I progressed and uh, specialised into paediatric intensive care, which for me sort of married up all of this stuff around being um, the, the kind of real deep, compassionate care that you can provide, plus the technicality and the complexity. So I really loved the, the way in which you had complex issues to deal with. Um, and so intensive care was what I wanted to do forever. Um, and there, there are times when you you have people who you look up to and who guide you. And one of them said, um, it, it's always a good idea if you're doing something that's really quite intense, uh, which is sort of, you know, it's in the name of their job, you know, um, and um, to kind of have a few few breaks every now and then so that you can be refreshed and, and to come back. So, um, so I applied for this job called a clinical risk manager at uh, Great Ormond Street Hospital in, in London and um, absolutely had no idea what it was, uh, genuinely, and neither did the people who were employing me um, because this was in the early 1990s when um, every hospital was expected to have a clinical risk manager because of the um, litigation scheme that they were all linked up with. So if something went wrong, the litigation was paid for by this organisation. Um, but in order to do that, you had to meet criteria, standards and, and all sorts. And, and on that tick list was um, every trust must have a clinical risk manager. And they kind of looked it up and they said, oh, I think that's somebody who is a clinician, knows about clinical stuff, um, but also can understand risk um, and, um, uh, and and go from there. And, there, and thankfully, there were there was a whole set of standards that you could follow, like set up an incident reporting system, uh, investigate those incidents and so on. Um, 
so I applied for that job and uh, and got it surprisingly and um and I I remember my very first week I went around with a clipboard because I thought that made me look really efficient um and um uh, and realized that you needed a hell of a lot more than a clipboard to do this job but my my um whole career has been peppered by the people I meet um and um at that point, I met um, the most astonishing people, one of whom was Charles Vincent, um, and the other was James Reason, and um, both of whom were obviously writing at the time in relation to clinical risk or risk management or human error. Um, and Charles said, oh, well, I'm starting up a master's at University College London. It's going to be the first one, and we obviously need people who... Um, you know, could try out the course, as it were, would you, would you volunteer? And I'm thinking, absolutely, I'll volunteer. Um, so I um, I got onto that around about the late 1990s. So I'm starting this clinical risk job in the, 19, the mid-1990s, the late 1990s, I'm doing this course. So there was a gap. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a nurse, I've gone into a clinical risk role, and there was a good two or three years when none of us knew what we were doing so there was this co connection network that started to creep in which was are you one of do you do clinical risk yes i do right brilliant so we connected up with at least 20 or 30 hospitals um in london um going well you help me i'll help you so this really lovely buddy network and then i got to do this course at ucl which was a master's in clinical risk and blown away I suddenly realized there was a science to this there was research there was ways in which you could start investigating stuff and until that point zero it is something that's bothered me ever since you say what are, what do we what, what could we talk about today it has really bothered me that that in healthcare if you want to work in safety you can be anyone and I it's not knocking anyone, but it is you can literally walk in, have no qualifications because there are very few qualifications to do this job. And you are responsible for the safety and the risk management of sometimes an entire hospital um, or an ambulance service or a primary care service or whatever. You're also responsible for individuals' lives, both the people who've been harmed, but also the people involved. So the clinicians are being investigated by people who have very, very little skill in investigating. So they just, you know, they get taught basic root cause analysis, which we now know is flawed in many, many, many ways, certainly uh, for healthcare. And they get taught these basic tools that they religiously use and make recommendations and assumptions about um, individuals who are working in healthcare, which can affect their whole careers. And I say that because um, I feel, it, it, you know, if somebody said to me, what's the, one of the highlights of your career? One of the highlights of my career was um, in 1997, um, I did an investigation. Now the actual event is most definitely not a highlight. Um, a, a young child who received the wrong drug into his spine, which meant that he was paralysed um, as a result of this incident. Um, and not only was he paralysed, what tends to happen is either you stay paralysed or you in fact die because of the paralysis. And he did in fact die. So it was 
one of the most traumatic things that could happen to a child and their family um, and um, and and the people and the and the staff around them now in that time in 1997 it was highly likely that the doctors and the nurses would have been um, told to go home uh, sat at home investigated taken a good year and a half to investigate possibly be referred to their regulatory council and referred to the police and they would have investigated in parallel or, or, or whatever that is for triple uh, by the organization by the police and by their councils um, and there would have always been that mindset these people did something wrong to this child and it is these people's fault so we just have to figure out which people did whatever they did and I remember saying um, to the director of nursing at the time who was tasked with leading all of this um we need we need to do this in a way that does justice to the child and and his family um but we also need to do this in compassion and empathy for the clinicians involved because every single one of us has been there haven't we and so we did that and instead of just looking at the individuals and go well you held the syringe so it must be down to you and you checked the drug, so you're a, an accomplice. We started to work all the way back, all the way back to decisions about um, how is this drug drawn up, how is it prescribed, how is it um, how is it developed in the in the pharmacy. Um, it 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 was a duo drug, which is why you get the wrong drug in the wrong place. So you have two drugs: one's supposed to go in a vein, and the other's supposed to go in the spine. And then the, the mistake is to switch. Them. Um, so we looked at absolutely everything. We looked at it across the world, how many of these incidents have happened. And around about that time, there were about 30 or so. So they they existed um, and we didn't know about them. Um, uh, and so we asked some key questions about what did they find in all of their investigations and their recommendations? What did we not know that we could have done? Um, and we started to look at the system. And I know that that sounds today, in today's language, people will be going, of course you would do that. But in the, in 1997, that would have been, I'm sorry, you're doing what? You're looking at the decisions made um, five years ago. That's a very strange thing to do. But we did, and we, um, this is why I, it's one of my proudest moments. We did such a good job that we created a case that said this organization let those clinicians down um, and that they were set up to fail. Um, and that um, along with the fact that they were human beings and fallible and they make mistakes and this is what we do and we switch things around in our eyes and heads and do all sorts of things. Um, so you cannot charge any of these people with manslaughter, which is what the Crown Prosecution Service wanted to do. And you have to actually understand that they need support and sympathy, as well as um, clearly the, the, the family and so on. Um, and so we did it. We led it with camp compassion and we led it in the way that we wanted to really, truly understand what had gone on. It was with the intent to learn, not the intent to blame. Um, and um, and that's what we did. And the Crown Prosecution Service dropped their case and the councils dropped their cases and the doctors and the nurses carried on with their careers, albeit very differently because they had been fundamentally changed by this event. Um, so um, I've gone on for quite some time, but it's, it's, it's so much about um, safety and clinical risk for me um, really um, matters on the level of expertise and experience you have.
And as I've said, I think one of the key problems we have in healthcare is that the level of expertise and experience is not enough in order to do the, that job for me well. Well, that's a very powerful statement. And I have presented uh, the Costa Concordia case uh, a couple of times uh, uh, with your, in your presence. And I think this was one of the things you, you also found interesting that they, the experience and expertise in the space. But even before we get there, Suzette, I, I just want, I just want to understand from you that, uh, you know, we are talking about a good 25 years before uh, contemporary safety sciences took off as it is today. And uh, what, what was the, what was the inspiration? What was the, the, the motivation to, 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 to go on this journey uh, for you? What, what, because it's, it's, it's a difficult path, let's put it this way. Uh, it was even more difficult at that time because people didn't know the language. Uh, they didn't know the philosophy, the methodologies, the approach. So what led you into this, uh, Suzette? Um, so I did, I did genuinely start doing clinical risk thinking this would be a year out um, and that I would um, get some experience of doing a management type job. Because as a nurse, you spend your entire life on shifts, working with um, uh, a unique, amazing amount of wonderful people, doing, um, uh, you know, it's constant provision of care. You don't really often step out of it. So I stepped out of it for a year thinking I would gain a, a wider perspective. I would gain... Um, uh, management skills, leadership skills, all those things. I thought this is really great for me as a person and to develop. Um, but what it is, I'm not entirely sure, but that this subject area grasped me in a way that um, maybe intensive care had at the time, but in a, in a different way. I suddenly realized that I was fascinated by this subject. And the more I learned, the more fascinated I became. Um, and the more I learned, the more I understood that it was so much more than safety, that it was about um, human behavior, psychology, sociology, our, and our histories and, and our cultures from, from the millennia and how we behave and our habits and our norms. But also, I've, there was a real thing in me, and I, it stayed forever, which is I've been there. I know absolutely what it feels like to make mistakes. And I know exactly what it feels like to make quite a serious mistake with the, so a child in my care um, received 10 times the dose of a drug, which is now we know a relatively classic calculation error. Um, but uh, at the time I had, to me, giving a child or, or checking a child's drugs and it's 10 times over the amount they're supposed to have was, mortifying was almost career limiting for me I just thought I'm obviously really 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 bad at what I do and I and I've become sloppy I've become somebody who wasn't going to check properly um, and and really seriously wondered whether I should continue with my career and so when I got into clinical risk and I and I did genuinely understand what it was about when I got the job it was just how do you do it but um I just thought, I want to do the sort of thing that I as a nurse would have wanted somebody to do. I would want somebody to walk into that room and say, I know this feels so bad. I know that you feel like you're gonna feel this bad forever. Um, and I know that you're probably going to think, 
it's all down to me. And I'm going to say to you, it isn't all down to you. Um, you are never going to feel this bad forever you are going to feel bad and, and you won't forget it um but it so it doesn't have a permanence and so don't let it affect every single aspect of your professional and personal lives and um, so i wanted to be that person that people wanted to you to walk onto the ward or to the unit not oh god it's the it's the risk management people or the investigators i didn't want to be the police um whatever the I'm not knocking the police who do an amazing job, but I, what is it that, 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 did I want to be the UN or something? I don't know. I wanted to be the the saviors that came in and said, it's okay, um, I'm going to help you through this. And that was what kept me going, the, the, the me as a nurse who needed that, who didn't get that, and I wanted to do that. Um, and I'm not entirely sure I realised that I was going to stay in it for the rest of my career. And um, do you know that? Do you know that when you're, you know, you're in your early 30s and you're thinking, this is it, this is it. Oh, right. OK. Um, but each step took me in a different way. So every single thing I've done has also kept my attention. So I've never been bored, never been um, not searching for more to learn and, and, and found it. That is like you say, there is it is constantly evolving and still evolving so how can we ever say we got there yet so that's why it's so so thrilling to be in an area that has evolved and has and is evolving um today but to be part of that history i remember talking to somebody the other day and they were like going oh gosh so you spoke to you knew charles when charles wasn't the the person that everyone now puts on a pinnacle or you knew james reason before again the same thing and you said yeah they, they're all just human beings and they're all striving to do and find out why things go wrong and um and now importantly why things go right um uh, when we look at the whole world of eric colnagel and his colleagues so yeah, I got into it kind of by accident, but actually totally fell in love with it and have loved it ever since. Uh, there's, there's so much to draw from what you say. Uh, as a non-native English speaker, um, I, I still can't come to terms with the idea, Suzette, that uh, there's something, a, a phrase like, I broke my leg. Now, how can I break my leg? Because uh, in my language, you say my, my leg was broken. Uh, so there's so much so much agency in in this language and hence so much uh, uh, blame uh, in inherent in the way we speak the language uh, i think it's it's very unique in some ways so that was something i picked up when you were talking about uh, that uh, that you were made to believe that you were the cause of 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 the accident or or, yeah. or the problem and i had a very similar experience as you did at sea i had a near collision I was made to believe something very similar. So that's fascinating, actually. Um, but how also you, um, you, you are you're moving towards uh, uh, not just looking at why things go wrong, but also uh, this, this journey towards how things go well or how things go right. Uh, and it's constantly evolving. So how does how does the future look like uh, uh, to you now in the way you're going now, Suzette? Where are you in this journey now? Yeah, I think um, a, a crucial change happened for me when, um, so I worked for a big agency, a massive agency called the Mas National Patient Safety Agency, and I did that for 10 years. Um, and um, 
it was set up to uh, create something called the National Reporting Learning System. So you would gather every single instant from every single hospital or GP practice and, and wherever. Um, and it would um, take all of that data, um, masses and masses, millions and millions reported each year, analyze all of that data, figure out where all of the problem and hotspots were, um, and, and then issue out alerts and guidance and instructions and, and thou must not do stuff. Um, trying to fix the problem and in that um that's all we did was we collected loads and loads of data and tried to fix individual problems and i remember it it felt right at the time and there's nothing in a way nothing wrong with what we did it's part of the history um but i do remember thinking it isn't quite working um and then again everyone's going well why would it work that quickly you know you but it it felt like um it there were still things happening time and time and time and time again and we were starting to drown in the information and drown in the data and kind of where you know where is where is the wood for the trees or how can we find out um really what's going on in in the system and i think that um the, the turning point for me was when um, I actually left that agency. Um, it closed down um, and I went to initially work for the litigation authority, which was intriguing, an intriguing year. Um, but, after, but during that time, I was approached to run a campaign called Sign Up to Safety. And, um, and the Sign Up to Safety campaign landed at the same time as I was doing. So I'd done my um, master's and I'd also done a doctorate in patient safety, but I was doing a big piece of work, which was all about um, that the conditions in which people work. So the conditions being, you know, whether they get enough sleep, whether they get enough um, hydration, food, rest, all of those things that help human beings function. Um, and I was um, doing a big piece of work on that. And so I was asked to lead this thing called Sign Up to Safety, saying what we, what we understand is that we are dealing with things piece by piece, one, jigs one piece of jigsaw at a time. And, and actually, we need something to look at that whole jigsaw and say, so, and what, would you, what do you think that we should be looking at? And I said, we should be looking at how we support staff to be able to actually do the work that they do well. So rather than wait for them to make errors, which they're going to do anyway, but rather than wait for them to do so or create the conditions in which they are more erroneous, so you make things too complex or you, you know, they whatever, they don't get enough sleep and, and, and so on, that you start to really think about what do they need. And part of what they need is us to really truly understand culture, not just say we want to change the culture, but truly understand it, unpick it and really think about how people behave towards each other. So some of the crucial things that we knew and everybody knows now is that if people are frightened to speak out for whatever reason, that, that things will go wrong, even though somebody's watching it go wrong. And um, that if people are fearful of people in more senior uh, jobs or different professions. So we, had, we looked at all of that behavioral stuff around hierarchy, 
um, professional status. There's a big thing between doctors and nurses and doctors and midwives. Um, there's issues between management, managers and clinicians and so on. And we looked at how people were enabled to talk to each other. So the, the, at the heart of the silent safety campaign was helping people talk to each other. And it sounds really, really, really simple, but we felt like it was something very important. Um, and, um, you know, one conversation um, we felt could change a whole relationship and, uh, and that relationship could then change more conversations, which could then lead to better team working, better leadership, better safety. Um, and so we started to work with junior staff, student nurses, student doctors, and we created platforms that we called them kitchen tables. We tried to get people to imagine, you know, you come home from work and you're sitting around your kitchen table and you're telling your, your husband or your wife or your partner or your sister or whoever, you're, the people you're sitting down with and you're going, oh gosh, um, this is what my day was like. And to be able to share that in a way that is much more about being um, friendly, because we were also looking at some brilliant research, which was if you are friends with the people you work with, you are in fact, you perform better. If you are um, rewarded for what you do, you perform better. If you are recognized for what you do, you perform better. So it all linked up to having good conversations, genuinely saying thank you, genuinely um, showing people how brilliant they are. Um, so links to things like the learning from excellence work and so on links to the brilliant work of Chris Turner. So we were all joining up. So Chris Turner's work on incivility, Adrian Plunkett's work on learning from excellence. We all started to join up during this period of sign up to safety that became um, a bigger entity because of that. And um, so it was a real turning point for me because in a weird way, I felt like I wasn't talking about safety, but I really was talking about safety. So I didn't use, you talk about language. I wasn't going around the country going, right, what we need to do is make sure that we capture more incidents and look at more incident investigations and using the words like risk and investigation and um, form filling. I talked about being compassionate to each other, with each other, helping pe people perform well. So this was so, I just felt it was so right. It felt so right. And everyone who was on the receiving end of it said, this feels so good that actually finally we feel like somebody cares about us, but also is helping us see the connections between how we work and safety. And it isn't, so if at the time I would say to medical students, give me a few lines or sentences or words that you think of when you think of safety. And they would say things like fear, blame, shame, instant reports, somebody reporting on me, somebody complaining about me, really totally negative stuff. And ra rather than, you know, joy and being safe and not failing and being successful and all of those things. So um, during this time, I, I um, saw Eric Holnagel speak at a conference um, and had the absolute pleasure of meeting him. And um, and he took me on that journey. So he kind of took me on my journey, in, in a way, my journey. And I saw it on the screen. So this is where we were in safety. And he obviously calls it safety one. So we're collecting loads of data. We're thinking about the problem. We're trying to fix them one piece at a time. And he's like taking me on this journey to, but actually, what if we looked at it differently? And and we in healthcare, we have this classic line, which I don't know about other health industries, but which is, 
10% of the things will fail and will harm our patients. And everyone uses this statistic, 10%, 10%, 10%, all of the time. It's based on Charles Vincent's work, but he himself would say that's slightly flawed, but we won't go there. So, but, but, he, but what Eric said was, if 10% of things fail, then what's going on with the 90%? What's going on with the rest? And I'm like, oh, you know, you know, when you have one of those days and you just walk out and you go, well, that's changed. That's changed everything. And it did, it, it just did. And, and so we used that platform that he provided me, which is what's going on in the 90% to ask everybody else, what's going on in your 90%? And we use very, very simplistic language. Um, sounds patronizing, but actually it, ne it was needed. And we use very simplistic visuals to sh say, you know, literally, this is what 10% looks like, and this is what 90% looks like, but to, to really clearly show that the vast majority of what you do goes okay. It might not go amazingly, but it goes okay. And 10% of it will fail, and that may be the natural variation. And I know that's a difficult pill to swallow, but, um, and so, how do we make that the ninety percent keep going, um, or or even better? And it's again totally landed on clinicians who that's what they spend their entire lives doing. They spend their entire life entire lives looking at patients who have something wrong with them, and they figure out well what can I do to not only stop the thing that's wrong with you, but enhance what's right about you. Um, and you know, they do that all of the time. It totally resonates with them to look for the good and so therefore safety too which is what we know eric calls it is is absolutely landing so positively in healthcare um but not only for that reason do i think that we should really think about it more seriously but because it just feels intuitively absolutely the right place to go the main issue that we have with safety too is that is that it is the most brilliant concept concept and ideology what we don't have um, is the strong depth of experience of application so in applying safety to how do you actually do this stuff um, and that's what i'm doing now that's what my um my current role is to really think about application of safety two and when i say application of safety two i mean all of the bits that also surround that such as a restorative just culture, um, psychological safety, all of the elements of psychological safety um, and, um, uh, and the behavioural science work that we did, the behavioural insights work in, in relation to helping people design things so that they are safer and so on and so on. So it's, it's I think I'm, there is a bit of um, maybe misunderstanding or, or whatever, but that lots of people think that safety too is simply just looking at success. And safety two is a platform in which you look at how things go well by understanding how people adapt and adjust and how the system functions and complexity and the cultures and everything. So for me, it is much, much bigger than how did we, how is, what is success? Um, so that's where I am now. And that's where I think we need to absolutely go. And also um, to be clear that there is no, no, nothing wrong with safety one. There is nothing wrong with collecting your data. Of course, we need that. And of course, we need to fix the failure and the problems. But actually, what you need to do is say, why did it, you know, the classic phrase that safety two people took say, which is, why did it fail in this instance when most of the time it goes okay? 
Um, so rather than just go, it failed, we have to sort that out and change the whole system because of that failure. We go, why did it fail in this instance? And actually, do we actually need to change anything because we need to recognize that it just did? Um, and we just need to keep going and reiterating what actually is working. So that's what I'm doing. And, and that's, that's brilliant. Uh, you have done it and, and uh, well, at least you have tried it and it seems to work. And, and so have I. Uh, I mean, you talk about... Uh, uh, I, I think th- there is so much to what you said. Um, one thing that stuck me was from the beginning of what you were saying was this was this uh, uh, this uh, idea of care, uh, which is so which is so embedded in 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 the purpose of what you do. In many professions, in many organizations, that purpose does not exist. Is that uh, those? I think that's something very unique about your profession, but also about education. It's all built around the idea of care. I think that. So it's a perfect breeding ground for 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 safety too, as you as you say. And the other thing I found intriguing was that, um, and I myself have practiced it for a while now, is how do we change conversations from controlling people to supporting uh, the, the the purpose of of the, of of the of the work that we do, and it is such a powerful. Uh, shift in in conversations that I have been able to also uh, witness. Uh, it just begins with, uh, I, I mean, looking at safety one and safety two, I've, and 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 other contemporary theories. Uh, I'm I'm convinced that one of the things that we we really need to get better at is 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 listening with an open mind to people. Yeah. It is not going with an agenda there. And I know it sounds very simple, so that but every time you 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 genuinely create that space for, for 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 listening to people you will change the tone of the conversation you will change the conversation completely and i think it it and it, it tends to drift into this this direction of 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 creating the conditions to support people because then you are genuinely committed to one purpose which is taking care of patients or passengers or or or, or customers or whatever but you create that collaborative space, as as you also described. Yeah, that I, I love the word you said, uh, uh, that uh, kitchen table talk. And this is exactly what we are trying to do also, is to create that space for a cafe where people come, regardless of their hierarchies, regardless of the department, they come and have a discussion. And what I see interesting is that most of the conversations that happen, and I think it's it's to do with the, the formal organization, the formal setup of the organization, is that it it creates not cafes and kitchen tables, but but showrooms where you enter into a conversation, you already have an agenda and you have an idea and you want to sell that idea to people. Now, people will not buy that idea until they really understand where you're coming from, one. Second is you make an attempt to understand them, where they're coming from. And so, yeah, this this uh, contrast between a showroom and, and a cafe or, or a kitchen table, as, as you call it beautifully, is, is intriguing, but but the power of conversations, meaningful conversations, is 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 becoming more and more clear to me. To say, why is it so important to create space for meaningful conversations if you really want to achieve a, a learning culture or learning organizations? Yeah, I mean, I suppose in 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 that analogy, you could see the potential for it being instead of a kitchen table to being more like a formal dinner uh, where everyone has a role to play and you know and you know which bit does which fork and knife will I use and and and, and that, that this is the so the the things that we talked about was very much about 
we did exercises where we would ask people to um so we put them into trios so you'd have a, a a speaker a listener and an observer and we would actually force people to be silent so you'd say right this this person's going to tell their whatever it is story um and you both of you so the speaker is allowed to speak for five ten minutes and you the listener and the observer you're saying absolutely nothing it, as much as you want to chip in, as much as you want to, you know, give your side of the story or your opinion, you've just literally got to listen. If it becomes awkward, the role of the um, listener is to ask an open, uh, an opening question, a question that creates more information rather than shutting somebody down. So if, if it gets difficult and awkward, then ask a question that will encourage the person to speak even more so it's simply you're just asking a question you're not giving an opinion you're not making a statement and the observer is to watch this interaction and then when the speaker is finished um, the listener who has listened to the story can then ask more questions and more questions but again it's got to practice doing those questions that doesn't shut the person down and what the observer has got to do is learn from that um, about the the brilliance of staying silent but also look at the body language look at the and and note the types of questions that work and questions that don't work but also to then be able to look at it in such a way that they could summarize what that conversation was about so they could say right you had a problem or this is the story and the listener has has elaborated that story and that as as a now as a trio if the issue was a problem as a trio could we actually look at that as a problem together so we've actually without we haven't tried to fix it right at the beginning because this is what we do very much in healthcare you come along and you go uh, i've got a problem and then immediately people are going oh okay we'll deal with this problem um rather than have we actually heard what the problem is do we really know what the problem is um so this is a way of trying to do that to slow everybody down and to see um to see more um and we called it beneath the sur a conversation to look at beneath the surface so that a lot of our conversations in healthcare are too quick to too above the surface um and so we wanted to get beneath the surface which also included not only what people knew and elaborated what people knew but also what they felt um and what they you know and so on um and so we taught people to do that and they absolutely loved them but struggled with them because you know you, that that's what you do. You struggle. You like you say you've got in your head. Oh, um, I know. I I I know what this person's about to say. I'd I really I've got something I need to to interject with. But by training people to do that, that's that's one way we felt would would really create a really nice enhanced conversation. And what we therefore wanted to do was do that both from a clinician to clinician perspective, but also then to break up all of those barriers. But, um, and then you build on that by recognizing the differences. So we would start to elaborate and say, so when it comes to gender, there's a big issue with uh, women. Uh, I know it's not the majority, but women who feel very fearful of speaking um, uh, more than men and so on. Massive issue with ethnicity, mass massive issue with uh, people who just 
feel different um, in all sorts of different ways. So we would talk to people in, in um, very low banding. We have bandings in, in healthcare. So, uh, and, you, and so we would talk to people in, in what would be considered very low banding jobs about what it felt like to be in conversations and, and how to empower them in some way. Um, and little things. So we talk to people about language, not belittling people, not not saying I truly understand what you're going through, but because you don't, but really trying to understand what their lives were like or are like. So it's that in you know in human factors terms, it would be the difference between what I imagine your world is like and what your world is 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 like. The work has done stuff. So it is about starting to unpick that. So we did a lot of that, and we held. We um, we we'd we'd have um, stands at big big conferences, and we were literally just like like the cafe you just described. So it looked like a cafe because we'd have all of these kitchen tables with um, red and white gingham cloths, um, lots of food and and drink, and all these people come out of their big sessions where they've been you know given a massive amount of lovely information, and then they'd come down to us and they'd be they'd be expecting something. Do you know, to, you know, they'd like, okay, you know, you tell me what you're all about. And we're like, going, no, you tell me what you're all about. And we, and they would be like totally blown away by the fact that they're just there to be listened to. Like, oh, okay. So, and we created this wonderful space in, in these conferences where people were heard. Um, and, then, and they genuinely then, gosh, did they, did they feel heard? Because we, whoa. So we got tons of stuff about how it felt to work in healthcare the difficulties that they have and the challenges they have, but the joy that they have and how things, you know, how we could work to get things better. Um, so so that's an awful lot of what we were trying to achieve. Um, but also there was another thing that we started to really focus on, which is Jessica Mesman's work. So Professor Jessica Mesman, she uh, works out of Netherlands as, um, again, wanting to really think, how do you apply safety to? And, um, so she did something that, again, clinicians really love, which is where she suggested, she calls it video reflexivity. I don't know that you need to worry about what it's called. Again, language, that's a really hard, what the hell's video reflexivity. But she's basically saying she wants to shine a light on the mundane and shine a light on the invisibility or the invisible stuff that you do, the things that you do by habit. So she said, all you have to do, get your, get your smartphone, um, film something that you do all of the time, whether that's putting in an uh, an injection or whether that's putting in a cannula, whether it's feeding a, a baby via a tube. Do something you do all of the time. Um, film it for, you know, 10 minutes or whatever it, it takes and then hold what she describes as, a, we would describe as a huddle um, of the people who do that same type of thing um, and say, oh, talk talk to me about what you see. Um, and people would go, oh, look at you, you use your left hand when you do that. I've always used my right. That's fascinating. Um, and instead of, you know, oh, I wouldn't have done it like that, um, which people have the tendency to want to say, she asks them to say, what do you see that really works here? What do you see that um, you would want to replicate yourself? And um, if everyone goes, well, no, there's nothing. I haven't learned anything because we all do it like that. Then that in itself tells you that you've got some kind of consistent practice going on. But at least you've shine, shone a light on something that has become so normal, so habitual, um, that they've forgotten they do it so well. Because then you say, well, 
most of the time that goes really well, doesn't it? And they're like, oh, God, yeah, we're not that bad. So her, and I know her work's so much more theoretical than that, but it's such a beautiful way of saying, just look at the brilliance of what you are and then keep doing that. Um, and also you might get some tips and tools from your mates who do it slightly differently. Um, so these all little lovely things get dropped into the kind of ocean of safety too, where, which would still, still, as I say, exploring um, and, and, and helping us really think about how do people actually function and perform um, doing what they do. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, I was, well... I'm so pleased in some ways that we had a second conversation. <laughs> I want to put it on the record because uh, the first time uh, the technology didn't work, and uh, but this is this has been such a brilliant conversation. How would you like to, to to sum up your thoughts? I have so much to add to what you say, but I'm just being conscious of the time. How would you like to bring it all together, Suzette? Oh gosh. Um, so I think that we've got to a point where. And in, in a way, me bringing it all together is that we, we all in safety need to bring it all together. I think that we all have to understand that we, that, and I, forgive me for the language of safety one and safety two, but it is what it is. It, for me, it, it encapsulates that we all need safety one and safety two to work well, to, to, to connect together, and for us to really think about how can we, um really make that work for the because we owe it to the people especially to the people who've had the hardest year and a half of their lives we owe it to them to do this and and to have the expertise and skill and knowledge to help them do what they do really well and we can only do that by obviously understanding all the data about failure and stuff, but by truly understanding what their world is like and to enhance that world. And to do that in a really compassionate, thoughtful, caring way. It is, for me, the only way that we can go forward. And, um, the, and the, the thing that ties all of that together is, is the again, I hope it's not cliched, but the fact that we're all human beings. And I think that um, that we can help shape healthcare um, in a way that becomes more of a partnership with our patients and more of a partnership with each other, more creating those, those, those teams that don't feel like they are disparate or pulling against each other in a in if we use all of the positive ways of safety so it is so for me i always talk about my work as looking at safety as a positive um ra rather than a negative and i and i and we have to move away from safety as a negative um and it's a, it's just the absolute heart of it because otherwise people are just fearful shameful feeling all those that, that guilt and we have to move from that um uh and the timing is just completely spot on people are exhausted overwhelmed have struggled and suffered in so many ways um that we need to be there for them um and safety the work of patient safety the work of safety is is an integral part of all of that um so i suppose that's 
kind of what I wanted to say. Beautiful summary. Um, and I would add one more thing to it, which is uh, people feeling demeaned and dehumanized also in some ways. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I will send you some visuals of what I, I I did some visuals on looking at it from both sides. I will share that with you. But no, that's brilliant, Suzette. Uh, and uh, before you go, where can people contact you uh, if they needed to? How do they approach you? Yeah. So um, it, all they need to do is go to my blog site, which um, as I, I'm writing my third book at the moment, so um, uh, the blog site is quite. Uh, it's uh, I haven't had time to go to the blog site to do very many blogs at the moment. I'm getting some guest bloggers coming up soon, which is lovely. But anyway, so it's um, it's SuzetteWoodward.org with no no dot in the middle of anything. So it's uh, as SuzetteWoodward.org www.SuzetteWoodward.org, um, and on there there's a how to contact me bit. So just click on that, and they get they can get hold of me really easily. This has been such a wonderful conversation, as it has always been talking to you, uh, listening to you, learning from you. Is is I feel very privileged to actually meet you in the first as a as a person, not once but twice. So it's it's wonderful. Thank you, thank you. It's an absolute honor to talk to you as well. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Suzette. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and if it has made you slow down, think, and reflect, then I have achieved my purpose. The idea of embracing differences is to open up our minds to different perspectives and possibilities so that we can learn from more than what we knew yesterday. I wish to remind all my fellow listeners that all my podcasts and related reference material is available on my website, novellas.solutions. I actually spend a lot of time thinking and researching about the topics of my podcasts. So if you want to learn about something new, please reach out to me. I will do my very best to create something that is meaningful to you. Alternatively, if you would like to do a podcast with me, please drop me a line at nipin.anand at novellas.solutions or you can even reach out to me on my LinkedIn account. For more than 10 years, my research has been deeply centered on understanding the extent to which organizations view incidents and accidents as an opportunity for learning and change. Personally speaking, I cannot think of a more powerful way to bring meaningful change in our organizations. I know it sounds simple, but most organizations struggle with extracting meaningful learning from accidents and incidents. If you wish to learn more about incident investigations, you can subscribe to my weekly newsletters on my website novellas.solutions. If you wish to reach out to me, you can drop me a line at nepin.anand at novellas.solutions or again, you can find me on LinkedIn. Thank you and see you next time.